Gabby Goldberg is an early stage Web3 investor at TCG Crypto, working on the firm's investments at the intersection of consumer and crypto not even a year out of college. She thinks and writes about the different ways we interact with technology and about ideas surrounding consumer technology and digital culture. You can follow her writing on Mirror and on Twitter. Today we talked about forced reflection, breaking into VC, modern friendships, and the new logic of the internet. All right, Gabby. So I just wanted to start with the college background because you're not too far out of college. And I think one thing that's been really relatable about your story and the path that you've taken is a bunch of uncertainty sort of in the beginning about what it was that you wanted to do, what you were looking into studying, any of that stuff. So why don't we start there? Because there's a, a pretty cool story coming through all that. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like this is something I don't get a chance to talk about a ton. And so oftentimes, if people kind of meet me or come across me, you know, in the middle of my journey, they think that everything was supposed to happen this way, or I knew that it was going to happen this way. And a lot of it is still very new to me. And I'm finding my way through things. And I'm really grateful to be in this position. But I I love the opportunity to to share my background with other young people to know that you don't need to have it all figured out as you go. So I'm from Southern California. I was a debate and mock trial kid in high school. And so when I went to college, I studied philosophy, or I I came into Stanford as a philosophy major. Very early on in my college career, I started taking some computer science classes and became very interested in kind of the intersection of those two disciplines. Maybe in a sentence, I was interested in how people interact with technology. So how do you grow and scale social computing systems? How do you bring real life friends into digital spaces? Or how do you make friends in an online space? I worked in the virtual virtual reality lab for a couple of years. And so I was kind of circling these ideas of consumer technology for a while. In terms of my professional career, I had literally no idea what I wanted to do. And like a lot of other college students, I kind of thought the way out or the way to a good job or a good career was in kind of like a corporate role, like consulting or banking. And so I applied to all of those things my junior year and I got rejected from all of them. And I kind of came to this moment where I was like, I didn't even want to do these things. They don't interest me. And I didn't even get them. And so if I can't even get what I don't want, I might as well figure out what I do want and then try and get that and just start over. And so I took some time off school and I went to Israel actually. I kind of like studied abroad on my own. So I was working at a startup there, like living by myself. I didn't really know very many people there. And kind of the idea behind it was I wanted to know what do I gravitate towards in terms of people and ideas and work opportunities when I'm outside of, you know, the bubble of Stanford or the bubble of things and people that I know. And I found that when I was there, I was working nine to five at the startup, but actually in my free time, I was spending a lot of time meeting founders and investors in the Tel Aviv startup ecosystem. And I was, you know, going to happy hours, meeting founders, hearing about what they were working on just for fun. And I was writing about some of those topics on my personal medium publication. And I ended up meeting an investor named Jordan Odinsky, who's at Ground Up Ventures. He was splitting his time between Tel Aviv and New York. And he was in Israel at the time. I had coffee with him. And he said, you know, if you work in venture capital, the stuff you're doing in your free time, you could actually get paid to do. 
And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. Let's let's explore. And I had no idea really what venture capital was at the time. I had a very vague idea, but I, I certainly didn't know that there was an opportunity for someone like me with my experience to my age to, to get into that field. His recommendation to me was to make an account on Twitter and start following founders and investors on Twitter, which sounded silly to me. I'd only been on Twitter in high school, but I made an account. I followed a bunch of people and literally two weeks after that COVID happened, I lost my job. I got sent home from Israel and I knew I didn't want to go back to college when it was going to be online. And it was actually on my flight home. It sounds like too good to be true, but it was on my flight home, you know, waiting at SFO to get back to Santa Barbara that I saw that someone I had been following JMJ or Jeff Morris Jr. at chapter one tweeted out that he was hiring an intern for the very first time. So if you want to learn about venture capital, you don't know what it is. You want to work with someone at a small, like apply here. And to me, it felt like the stars had aligned. Like I had been circling a lot of these ideas for a while and I looked at Jeff's portfolio and it seemed really interesting. So I sent him an email. I basically said, I really have no idea what venture capital is. But someone just told me I might like it. And I just lost my job. So let's see. And I had a couple calls with him and we really got along and I ended up working with him. And so that is kind of what catalyzed you know, the rest of my career in venture, a lot of it was being, you know, at the right place at the right time. And so I feel so lucky that things happened the way they did. But that was kind of my story in college and how I kind of fell into this field. You know, it's interesting you bring up the sort of moment of applying to all of these like consulting and finance jobs and everything. And it's, I think, pretty universal for a lot of people. I know I know a lot of people here at, at Chicago sort of are, are, are almost pigeonholed into doing this in a way where there's an environment at a lot of schools where finance or consulting seems to be like the way to do it. And everybody tends to follow that path because a lot of people around them are doing it. And it seems to be what they're supposed to be doing. But at the end of the day, it sounds like in your case, that moment of forced reflection or, you know, going over to Israel, taking some time to actually think about what you want was what did it for you. So it's, it's interesting you bring that up. I think forced reflection is probably a good tool. With that said, you know, having had this stint in VC now and doing all these great things at, you know, a year out of college now. A little bit less. A little less. I feel like I shouldn't share that as publicly as I do. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think the biggest like lessons you've taken away from being in VC, just as short as you have, have been so far? Yeah, I think the people who do well in venture are, sounds like a cliche, but insatiably curious and honestly a little bit sometimes people ask me like why why you like why are you in this job and a lot of times my answer is just I want it more than anybody else I'm a little bit competitive in that way but when you find the things that really interest you and really drive you forward it is a really beautiful role to play in the ecosystem of helping to push those narratives forward for me a lot of my life has been about basically like telling stories and sharing narratives with the world so you know, even for me, I write really publicly and being able to tell my own stories and share those with my community has been really fulfilling for me. And I found that venture capital is a great way to push forward the stories of others. Capital is a great way to tell stories. And so for me, it's a really fulfilling job to be able to kind of focus on the areas that really interest me and work with the people who care about the same things as I do and be able to just like really dig into those and see the impact that it can have on the ecosystem. And so you've got to be very curious and you have to learn a lot about what you like, but you also have to know that you don't have all of the answers. And so a little bit of like putting your ego to the side 
and sometimes letting founders lead you to the water. And maybe they've spent their whole life thinking about something that you've never thought about. And then you very quickly have to get up to speed. So a little bit of like the competitive edge helps with that too, of moving quickly. Definitely. Riding off of that, what would you say is like your go-to advice for anybody that's asking like, oh, how do I do what you did? How do I break into VC? I say you should get on Twitter first (laughs) because that was the advice that I got. And I think especially as a young person, if you're trying to get into venture and you haven't built and scaled your own company, like maybe someone older who has now transitioned into a role in venture, I think it's probably better to have an edge as opposed to being a generalist. Maybe if you've like understood how to build and scale a SaaS business, you can kind of be a generalist for all things. But I found for someone like me, if you're young and in venture, you can use your age and your experience as an advantage, but only if you've like, you know, really kind of thought it out. And so for me, consumer technology, how people interact with and particularly within the Web3 ecosystem, I'm actually like very well primed to contribute to that discussion because I've kind of lived it. I've grown up with technology. I learned how to code by, you know, building my own Tumblr website. I spent so much time on Minecraft and RuneScape. I've made a lot of online friends in my day. And now kind of like growing up with crypto coming into the mainstream, I kind of live and breathe these ideas. And if you're targeting someone like me, the new the new age of the consumer, I'm actually very well primed to like be a diverse perspective in that discussion. And so having that focused experience, whatever it might be, it doesn't need to be that. It can be, you know, fintech if you have experience in banking or it can be SaaS if that's what you like. But I think to have an edge and contribute, you know, specific perspective is, is helpful. And then if you're trying to get a job in venture, people know that you're that expert in that topic, as opposed to just being kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, like mediocre at everything. If you can be an expert at one thing, then I think that's really helpful. All right, let's get into some of the fun stuff here. You're at TCG Crypto now. Congratulations, by the way. I'm curious to hear, before we get into the TCG story, I'd like to hear a little bit about how the whole Web3 thing happened for you. Because at first it was like very consumer tech oriented and suddenly we're talking about like DAOs and social tokens and stuff. Like how did that progression look for you? Yeah, on paper it happened really quickly. But I think when you really think about it, this has been a very long time coming for me. And almost in retrospect, it looks like the narrative makes a lot of sense of the things that I've done in my career kind of leading up to this point. Again, at the time, had no idea what it would look like, but it, it makes a lot of sense that this is where I ended up. And I'm really happy to be here and stoked to join the team at Chernin. Um, I've always, like I said, been really curious about the different ways we interact with technology. So even starting from age 18, that's what informed my decision to study computer science and philosophy. And when I was at both chapter one, the first venture firm that I worked at, and then at Bessemer Venture Partners, where I spent a year kind of finding a voice as an early stage consumer investor, again, like thinking really deeply about all of these ideas. And over the past couple of years, as I've been writing and kind of sharing thoughts with my community online, I thought a lot about these ideas. One of them kind of most prominently is this idea of curation. So I wrote a piece over a year ago now called Curators Are the New Creators, where I basically said, like, the creator economy is great from putting out more content than we ever have before. But now where we have kind of come in that evolution is we need people to sort and separate signal from noise. And so these are the curators and what is their role going to be in the ecosystem? And it was actually really funny when I published that piece because I really didn't touch on crypto at all. It was just kind of these values and these first principles that I thought were interesting. And all of the comments I got from this piece were from my friends in crypto who were saying, Gabby, curation is literally like the backbone, the backbone of crypto. Like this is literally what blockchain technology empowers. You're fully missing the point. 
And I was like, no, no, you're just saying that because you want me to work in crypto. And at the time, I really didn't connect the dots. And then over the last year, obviously, I've connected the dots really well. And I published another piece on curation that hopefully updates my thinking a little bit more recently. I've also written about this idea of modern friends and making friends online. And this idea, this idea of like identity in digital space is very much like a web three philosophy. So I, I've been thinking about this, these ideas a lot. And honestly, the reason I thought about these a lot is because they affected me so personally, you know, like I said, making friends online, existing in these virtual spaces. This is why the internet was created. And in my view, you know, over the last few decades, maybe we lost our way a little bit into what the internet could really be. And, um, I believe, and a lot of people in this ecosystem believe that crypto will kind of bring us back to the original values of the internet and why it was created and bring the best parts of Web2 with it. Some aspects of centralization, a really powerful user experience that's accessible to both technical and non-technical consumers, but really like making the internet the great equalizer that it was supposed to be is very much like a crypto native goal. And so the reason I decided to join TCG over any other fund, particularly like any really crypto native fund is I have felt that something really missing in this ecosystem is the voice that empowers the consumer. More people are coming into crypto now than ever before. And in my view, some of the smartest people I know are building products in crypto, but actually those people are not necessarily the same ones who built and scaled successful products in web two. And so this aspect that I've been thinking about a lot of building narratives and storytelling and creating really powerful communities often kind of falls through the cracks in Web3. And it, like I said, if we can bring the best parts of Web2 of this consumer expertise to Web3, I think we're going to be the most well positioned to bring in this next wave of new consumers, the next 10 million, 100 million consumers into Web3. And I felt that being at a consumer fund would be able to do that really well. So some background on TCG, it's around a decade old firm it's been solely focused on digital consumer. And so making investments like Twitter, Pandora, Surfline, The Athletic, they actually seeded OpenSea during their seed round as kind of like their first investment in the space. They let the Series A Z run and also invested in Dapper Labs. And so been kind of circling these ideas. Their view is that the next horizon for consumer is crypto, which obviously I believe as well. And so if they can focus on that intersection of consumer and crypto, they can kind of add strategic value there. Distribution, go-to-market, storytelling, and all of these things. And so when I heard about what they were doing and their focus, it was clearly like so perfectly in line with the things that I've cared about. And so for me, it was a no-brainer to join. So you're definitely working at the frontier here. And I'd assume a lot of that comes with being able to break down these otherwise pretty foreign concepts for people and put them very, very simply. So let's say you're talking to someone that has no idea what Web3 is. Like, do you have a go-to example that you try and give to get through to people like that? Ooh. I mean, I say Web3 is what the internet was really supposed to be. I think a helpful thing there is kind of giving a history. A big misconception, honestly, that I had, and I think a lot of other people have, is that crypto is this, you know, fundamental step change in values and technology in a way that is like so fundamentally different from what we've seen before. And in some ways it is, it is really like innovative technology that hasn't existed before. But in terms of the value system, I believe that it's actually quite similar to things we've cared about for a while. I'll kind of start from the beginning. So the web was created in 1989 with this vision, decentralized and open network of information. And so in this vision, users were in control and not centralized platforms. And so during this first era, like web 1.0, 
which is kind of like the static and read-only version of the web, we saw companies like Google and Yahoo and Amazon. And originally, these were all kind of built on these open protocols that people could contribute to. And when the internet was first created, it was highly technical. If you didn't know how, how to contribute to those open protocols, it was not really for you. And so at the time, a lot of people really didn't think the internet was going to go anywhere because it, it didn't fit what like the traditional consumer could, could adapt to. And then obviously, as we saw over the next couple of decades, basically until the present, the present in Web2, as those platforms reach scale, consumers kind of migrated from those more decentralized services to centralized ones. And so this is kind of a trade-off. It was good because it made true the internet's goal of providing access to the internet to billions of people across the world. And so this is when that, that wave of consumers who were not highly technical could finally really be a part of this movement. But kind of on the con side of things, it really limited our ability to be innovative and dynamic because it became a lot harder for individuals to create things online without this fear of a centralized platform taking control. So a great example that we still see today is Apple. If you build something on the App Store, Apple takes a 30% cut of all revenues, which is insane to me. <laughs> when you really sit down and think about it, 30% is an insane number. There's a company, FanHouse, that is run by some friends of mine who I really respect. FanHouse is kind of a creator tool that lets you paywall posts and share things with an intimate community, and you can earn money from your most engaged fans. Like That is a great vision, and ideally, all of that money should go to the creator, right? The creator creates the fans, they bring them to that platform, they should make those revenues. And because they're hosted on the app store, Apple takes 30% of the creator's revenue. And if this is your sole source of income, that's a lot of money. And so that's just one proof point, but it really helps to illuminate what that actually means for these new technologies. So kind of, I, I give that history to people and I say, my view and the view of a lot of people in crypto is that Web3 will bring us back to these original values. And so these are the kind of the buzzwords that I use when I explain. Web3 will be decentralized. It will be community governed, efficient, innovative, accessible. This is a big one and really wildly dynamic. And how that works is basically um, when something is built on a crypto network, it gives us this cooperative economic model that aligns incentives over time. Apple is an example that I already talked about. So I'll give another example of maybe like Google or Facebook. Users on Google or Facebook, as those platforms grow over time, the incentives actually change between what Google or Facebook wants and what the users want. And so th those incentives over time become more and more misaligned until all of a sudden you are a part of this huge platform that like isn't really doing what it initially set out to do, you know, connecting people and bringing people together. Even the Facebook whistleblower that like all of that news over the past week or two is a great proof point of that. On a crypto network, when users are actually aligned with platforms from the ground up, meaning that they're actually shareholders in the network itself, as the platform grows, it becomes more resilient and the users actually become more incentivized to innovate and create new technology because they're owners in, in the value of that network. So obviously we're extremely, extremely early in that vision. And so sometimes it's hard to share that with people who um, haven't been thinking about this for at least a little bit. I think honestly, we're maybe like a decade or two away from like really seeing this serve to the masses, but that's the fun part. And that's the challenge of being able to, you know, really be at the forefront of it and um, see if I'm right. <laughs> Let's hope so. Let's touch on accessibility for a second. I know a big sort of point of contention, especially when it comes to things like social tokens, DAOs, any of this other stuff, even just crypto in general, is just 
accessibility from a financial standpoint to begin with, right? If I want to buy into, I don't know, take any DAO, if I buy some social tokens, I am paying the equivalent of quite a lot in US dollars to do that. You see the same thing in the NFT space. It's like, not everybody gets to take part is sort of my point here. Yep. Do you see that developing in a certain way in the future? Yeah, it's certainly something that we need to talk about a lot because as the early people building this future, we need to make sure we're having these discussions early on. I've actually written about this in this piece I wrote called The Social Token Paradox. Um, in that piece, I'm talking about social tokens and DAOs or these like kind of decentralized communities. And essentially how these communities work right now is you own a token. So for example, I'm a part of a community called FWB and I own the FWB token, which allows me to be a part of the community. Right now, these communities are primarily valued proportionally to their token price. So when the value of the token goes up, the value of the community goes up. And when the price of the token is higher, the community obviously becomes more desirable to join. And so FWB is a, an example I always throw out because they're incredibly desirable to join. You know, the token price is like pretty insanely high if you want to join the community now, which honestly wasn't the original goal. You know, when FW, FWB was created, you could kind of buy in and anybody with like any kind of like reasonable amount of money could join the community. And now because the price is so high, it really is exclusive to diverse voices and diverse perspectives, which is a problem. It's definitely not something we want, we want to uphold, especially as the communities we see today are really the pioneers of what we're going to see over the next couple decades. Um, I think the biggest thing we can do right now is have these discussions and talk about it. I do think there are, uh, there are a few like technical changes that need to be made. One of them being judging things by on-chain activity. And basically what that means is tracking on the blockchain, the things that you do online. So instead of just being a member of something by buying your way in, maybe you can earn your way in or contribute. And even if you don't have a lot of money to begin with, you know, the things that you have to contribute are really valuable. And then it makes room for a lot more diverse voices and perspectives. But surely this is really important. I will say something that has been really personally gratifying for me is, you know, like coming from traditional tech communities and then moving into Web3. I have found that the Web3 communities, both online and in real life, when I've gone to conferences and meetups and things like that, it's such a diverse group of people. I actually once went to like a park hangout during one of these crypto conferences. There a stranger at the park came up to me and asked me like, what is this? Like, what, what are you guys here for? And I explained it was a crypto meetup. And she's like, you guys are all so cool. <laughs> and it was musicians and artists. And for the first time, like a really even split between men and women and all different ages and people coming from all of these different backgrounds and experiences. And I, at least personally, had never experienced that before. And so I think we're off to a good start. Obviously, there's a lot of more conversations that need to be had to make sure we don't lose ourselves along the way, but it has been something that has been really exciting for me to see. Another cool thing you talk about, and I think you've written about this as well, is just what online friendships mean. And I'm really curious as to your thoughts on how that looks in the future, right? I'm, I'm really interested in what it means for our real life personas and our digital personas to sort of merge in the future. You talk a lot about metaverse stuff, you know, obviously sort of ingrained in the Web3 thing. Do you have any sort of strong convictions in that space? Yeah, I love this question because I have so many online friends that have transitioned into real life friends, especially over COVID. Basically, I talk about this concept of modern friends, which are friends who kind of originate in digital space and then move into this offline, online connection. I think this the line between what I call URL and IRL is becoming increasingly blurred. 
And as we spend more time online, we have these, you know, digital versions of ourselves. And so this is also something that I think Web3 really helps to empower is this idea of identity and digital. How do you present yourself online? How do you join communities online and make real, you know, enduring connections and friendships? This is largely an unanswered and unfinished question in Web3 right now. Right now, the idea of identity is largely kind of confined to your wallet address, you know, the tokens you hold, the communities you're a part of, the NFTs you own. And it's certainly a good start, but I don't think that this is the end goal. I think we're going to see a very interesting social layer for the internet start to emerge, built on this blockchain technology, which will show how do you interact and transact and share things with share things with friends online. NFTs are certainly a cool start because it's a little bit similar to like having painting hung on your wall in your home, except now thousands of people come into your house every day and can see the paintings you have. Um, there's a really interesting company called OnCyber. If you go to OnCyber.io and it's sort of like this digital like 3D experience to showcase the NFTs almost like in a, in a digital home of your own. So it's certainly a good start. But it's been really cool to see these communities kind of start from the ground up in Web3. These like niche Discord communities and servers and start to see kind of how people congregate and, and build really interesting things. I do want to take a little bit of time to talk about the latest thing you've written. I didn't realize this was happening before we came on. So really cool because it's like half an hour old or something. But talk about talk about DAM, talk about uh, decentralized autonomous media networks. Yeah, sure. Um, essentially, I talked about this problem with media networks a little bit earlier. I'm talking about Facebook and Google not necessarily being what they originally set out to be. And I have to say, I, I wrote this piece with my friend Kieran, and so I have to give him credit. He is an incredible writer, and he's working on this, you know, personally on Verse Protocol. I definitely recommend anyone listening to check out Kieran's profile and what he's working on with Verse, and he's really trying to kind of productize the site. But we wrote about what a media network would look like if it were collectively owned by its users. Essentially, we believe that you know the next stat function innovation in consumer crypto will be DAMS, this decentralized autonomous media network. So there are three fundamental characteristics that we think a DAM has. One, it's a tokenized network owned by its users. So for example, let's think of um, Barstool Sports. Imagine if Barstool Sports was a DAM. Every contributor to Barstool Sports would now own the Barstool token. And so if the value of Barstool goes up, everybody benefits. But if people are slacking off and, slacking off and the quality isn't good, the, the token price goes down and people can buy in and support it and invest in it the same way you can invest in any other entity. So that's number one. Number two is built-in incentives for users to coordinate and adding value to that network. So, I mean, it's pretty simple here because participants of the dam actually own the network. They're much more incentivized to coordinate in increasing the value of that network. So think about Instagram on Instagram. We obviously are not owners of Instagram unless we work there and have some equity share in the company. And so really because of that, because we're not owners in the actual network, we're really just incentivized to make it all about ourselves, right? You post as much as you want, you make it all about you. You can sometimes spam the feed. That's why a lot of times you see these like really annoying accounts on Instagram saying like follow for follow or like for like or spamming all the time. So the algorithm, you know, bumps them up in the feed and people have found ways to make the network work for itself or, or work for that person. But if you were a shareholder in it, 
obviously that would make the value of that network go down, right? Instagram sucks when it's just follow for follow or like for like. If it were actually a highly curated feed of really interesting things, the value would be a lot higher. And if everyone were a shareholder in that, they'd be a lot more incentivized to make that happen as opposed to make it just about them. So that's number two. And then lastly is the singular utility of creating and distributing media. This one is really just what separates a dam from a DAO, or which is a decentralized autonomous organization. So if a DAO is really like a decentralized community, a dam is a media network. So I guess I'll stop there. I definitely encourage people to read about it. The really interesting thing that we're doing is in this piece, we are crowdfunding the creation of the world's very first dam, which is going to be a publication on Mirror. And if you own 250 damn tokens, you can be a contributor on this publication. And I guess we will see where it goes. This is very much an experiment, but it's been really cool to work on this piece with Kieran. He's just absolutely brilliant. And I'm excited to, to build this dam with him. So if you want to be a part of it, you should uh, get into the crowdfund before it's too late. Get out to it, people. I'm excited to see where it goes. All right. Talk soon. Cool. Have a good weekend. You Talk too. soon. Bye.